Welcome to Keep Going, a podcast about failure and success, hosted by John Biggs. Every week, we talk to an amazing person about a time they failed and what they learned. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going. Welcome back to Keep Going. It's a podcast about failure and success. And today on the show, we have Chris Dancy. Uh, he's the most connected person in the world, uh, according to Google. He's also a techno-pagan uh, and one of my favorite people. And, uh, and I'm glad you're here, Chris. Thank you, John. So good to hear your voice. I said to myself, I was done for the year. But when I got your message, I thought to myself, I will <laughs> I'm, I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. I said, I will squeeze in one more chat, one more, you know, I'm not done for the year with my friends and stuff, you know, with like yeah, people, people wanting to pick my brain. I'm like, okay, this is done. I'm done until 23. Well, but I, you I'm are, not, you're, yeah, we're not you're, trying to pick your brain here. I don't want to, I don't, I don't need your, I don't need your advice on, uh, on, I don't know, a marketing funnel. I need your advice right? on, uh, on, on how to live a uh, humane life. So listen, I, I consumed, devoured your episode that you have with Joel Johnson. I think mm -hmm. his name was, yep. um, and my first question after listening to that and then looking at the branding, love the branding, by the way, anything where keep is on fire, that's good for me. Why is failure first and success is second? Sorry to start by asking you a question, but. I think the answer to that is that uh, failure is more the crucible for success. Mm -hmm. I thought, I thought that that's the way it should, that's the way it should look. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I think I've gotten most and i've never done a, like a like a self self analysis episode yet and it's only a couple episodes no, long so not out loud yeah I'll, I'll eventually do that um mm -hmm. but the uh but like I, I found i found one of my biggest failures and like not even failure per se it was just an emotional experience uh helped me grow immensely um and i also think that there's way too much of this uh rah rah happy entrepreneur world of Gary V and all these guys uh -huh. who say you got to crush it and you got to quit school and you got to do all this stuff. And actually, no, you don't quit school. You go to school for something amazing and you graduate and then you realize that you have a set of skills that nobody else has. And yeah, maybe you wasted your degree, quote unquote, on, I don't know, basket weaving or whatever. But down the line, you're going to use that in your in your career, and you're going to figure out how these things how these things are interconnected. I also I also look at it from a historical perspective. The, the, a lot of huge failures. Uh, let's talk about I don't know the the original idea of canning food. Uh, it came about when when Napoleon was on the move, and he had to put he had to, they, he didn't have any food, so they basically started carrying food with them in in jars. And uh, and they realized if you pasteurize the jars, if you if you sealed the jars with a vacuum, uh, you could keep the food for longer. So basically, mm -hmm. you had this massive failure. People were dying of hunger on the on the road. And and what was the impetus? What was the what was the solution? You basically started putting soup into champagne bottles, corking them up, and carrying them off with the soldiers. And from that, you got canning. And from that, you got I don't know uh, the <laughs> the uh, the modern grocery system. Uh, yeah. So all these things, all these huge problems and personal problems or, or global problems are imp are the impetus to uh, to change and improve yeah um it's funny you mentioned gary v i've been i had a very public twitter battle with him almost a decade ago i think the reason hustle culture even with all of its outing has continued to thrive is because it is only successful because it thrives on a lack of permanence 
Mm-hmm. Hustle culture is the only thing you can do in life where you don't need to prove you've done anything. It's so intoxicating yep. to know that you are, you're hustling, you're getting it done. And mm-hmm. it's very much, this is now, this is now, but everything people are creating in hustle culture is very flash in the pan. Kind of like when you put a, a drop of water on, on a hot pan. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you were describing going to school, well, you know, what I would call the more, you know, traditional model of hustle, it, it, it thrives on actual permanence. You know, you have done this. There is a body of work. But I think far too many young people today are uh, caught up in what they're creating and not what they have created, which kind of leads me to my first lesson. You are the person you save. Okay. So let's, let's get started. I didn't mean let's to transition. See. Sorry about that. No, that was great. No, I was, I was, I, mean, <laughs> I have, I have slight, I have a, I have a slight chills. Uh, it might, it's cause it's 41 degrees here in New York, but I'm also, uh, I'm also fascinated by this. So let's, let's talk about this. So as, as you know, the show is basically, uh, here, here's how I, here's how I dealt with adversity. And, uh, yeah. and I think everybody can share that, but I don't think everybody's vulnerable enough to share that. But I think, uh, I think you're the, you're just the, uh, the lad who, to, uh, to share that. <laughs> yeah. So adversity. So, you know, I guess not the, the 5,000 foot sentence, 53, uh, male, uh, gay, nine binary married, living in upstate New York, uh, eighties, a computer kid. Nobody knew what that was. Nineties parents couldn't afford college. So I got kicked out at my, my literally fall uh, spring semester because my parents had spent the money and didn't tell me. So like literally walked me out of class. Um, uh, you know, Two years later, my lover drops dead from HIV in bed. Just lots of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, 30s, just drunk, drug-addled, um, uh, rehabs, jails, institutions. 40s, uh, very successful in technology now, but you know, no degree or anything. I was just successful because I had made the jump from, like, consultant to salesperson. And then, but except I was, you know, 300 pounds, I was falling apart, like, everything was bad. To now, here we are 10 years from my, my, big, my big pivot, where like, okay, everything is kind of normal now. So, you know, how do you deal with adversity? You know, Mm -hmm. I think I consider myself adversity as a service. You know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. if if you can have stuff thrown at you, I've I've kind of somehow gotten through it. But the kind of the the neat thing about adversity, and I was just talking to my friend Debbie about this, is when you're in it, if you're navigating it well, you don't know. You were just suffering. And you don't know you navigated adversity well until you actually take time post adversity to look back, you know, in business, we, what do we call them? Postmortems. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't do personal postmortems. We do the war stories. Yeah. Well, this one time I you know, was in a car accident and I, well, how did that make you feel? But whereas I think I've just excelled at doing kind of postmortems. So for me, I'd say like my first big life lesson that I had to come to terms with was kind of what we're talking about with hustle culture. And that's you become the person you save. Early on, everything I did with technology was about extracting something from the technology for every pound of flesh I gave to it. So if I had to make a spreadsheet for my dad in 1982, I made a spreadsheet for me about the Michael Jackson records I was collecting. You know, by 1991, if I was installing, you know, a a file sharing system so that people could collaborate on calendars, I made a calendaring system to actually log the work I was doing, right? That actually went with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think far too many people focus today on creating things that they'd actually don't get a pound of flesh out of. So, you know, when I think about adversity, you know, kind of the, that goes the tie director of this lesson, you become the person you save. I'd say in the eighties, the early eighties, when I was an early teenager, I was physically abused a lot. I was gay, 
my parents probably knew it, but like, you know, no one talked about that crap back then, unless you're on Donahue. Um, and my friends, you know, just would always make these snide jokes. Like you'll probably end up with AIDS, you know, little did I know a decade later, I'd literally be in bed next to someone who just died from AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I used at that point, you know, how did I go overcome it? And it was very interesting. I mean, I literally would start to create, again, spreadsheets of how I was feeling, what the day was like, and I'd be able to sort them. And, you know, you were early spreadsheets, like sorting was a big deal. Like sure. it could go this way and it could go that way. And for me, just being able to reflect like, okay, last week wasn't the horrible thing I think it was, but two days were pretty bad. Uh, that was like a real start to like my beginning of, okay, maybe adversity has a technological component. And technology can be anything. It can be a book. It can be a journal you're writing in. It can be a spreadsheet, right? And I just think I'm probably a little bit unique. I mean, I think we're similar in age, but that, my first tools for adversity were all tech-based and continue to be to this day. That's an interesting point. So, so you have, you have, uh, to some degree, like you're neurodivergent. Is that, yep. is that something that's, is that something that, that caters towards that way of thinking? Cause I, I, I would, for some reason, I always get stuck without the spreadsheet, right? I always get <laughs> stuck without, without the, uh, without the, um, count up countdown timer or the, uh, or the, uh, or the, here's, here's how many times you've meditated or whatever. I don't, I don't use that. I don't use that to, to drive me. I think it's just, I, yeah. I think my, my, the way I'm driven is basically, okay, I got to do a thousand words a day if I'm writing a novel or if I'm writing a book or something like that. And if I can't get that in, then I feel bad or I got to every account other, I don't, I don't need to write it down. I don't need to write yeah. it down. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you're, you're, you, the value of your work is the production. Uh, hmm. yeah. And, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. You know, I, I, I rarely talk about neurodivergence out loud. Um, I only recently came out as autistic and, um, and I, you know, I've been, I was institutionalized as a, as a teenager, uh, shortly after this kind of really dark period of, you know, just co- coming to terms with being gay and everything. And at the time I was diagnosed OCD since then I've been given every diagnosis from ADHD to, uh, to OCD to, you know, generalize all those other things. And, as I've gotten older, I've really come to terms with like a lot of the sensory processing issues I have. But to your point, neurodiversity. Yes, I, I truly believe the reason neurodiversity is a thing, but to that point, witchcraft is a thing, you know, online is because people have decided their external tools far outweigh the internal ones. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, whether you're using a Ouija board or you're creating a spreadsheet to log your feelings, I think any way we can externalize ourselves is a great way to internalize what, what we're feeling. I love the fact that your output value mechanism is the 1,000 words a day. But to me, I could do those 1,000 words. They mean nothing hmm. until I can say what they meant to me. Hmm. Okay. That's just, I don't know. I'm wired that way, hardwired. Well, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, 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 and I, the, the reason why I'm asking is I think if, if we have an audience that is a little more techie, I mean, this is not, we're, I haven't expanded into, I haven't expanded into artists, writers, musicians yet, mm. but I definitely want to. But I think, uh, I think most of the folks that I've been talking to right now are techie because we're both techie, right? We're all, we're mm. all techie. Mm. Uh, and I'm, and I'm fascinated by that. And, and I think one of the points that you always make is that, is that we're not overwhelmed by technology right now because we're basically we're we're in the middle of it. We're in the midst of it. I think I think that was a really good point that you made a, a while back. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like my my my. I've got five rules that kind of guided my life, and five that guide like when I look at other people. 
And, you know, one of those rules is we, we can't escape technology because we've become technology. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people right now, again, I'm going to show my age. There was a commercial back in the seventies and eighties for Pamala dish soap. And mm -hmm. this lady goes to get her nails done. And, uh, the lady doing her nails is soaking her hand. And then she soaks <laughs> her hand. She goes, what are you doing? It's dish soap. And you know, why is my hand a dish soap? She goes, well, you're soaking in it. And yeah. the whole point of it is the dish soap can be just as good as, you know, hand softener because it's basically got hand softener in it. And mm -hmm. I think, for so many people today, so much of their lives is just technology extended. Everything from getting in the car and using the GPS to like, is your Sonos system or is your streaming services or your Netflix? I mean, there's nothing. I think our kids are probably a lot less bothered by technology than we are. But again, John, I've been saying, let's not worry about technology for a decade, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we'll be, I mean, we all have a choice. And if you do, you've got too much money, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, from, from, from what you said, technology essentially it did everything for you. It helped you, it helped you focus. It helped you build who you are today. It helped mm. you get through the abuse. Mm. Yeah. So much of that. And, and again, I, I, you know, it's something I'm only recently started becoming okay saying out loud to me, I see technology as an accommodation, right? Uh, you know, I've been told for decades by different friends of mine who are teachers who teach that young people today, at least for the last 20 years have paras and all other sorts of learning aids in the classroom. Some kids were getting iPads before any kids were allowed any technology because they needed it as, a, as an accommodation. Normally, when we think of accommodations, we think of, you know, people who are differently able, you know, who might need canes or specialized uh, walking apparatuses mm -hmm. or you know, all of those things. But, you know, I think for the neurodivergent, you know, kind of the last great bias we all have to suffer after we get through all the other hard ones. Um, we kind of have to tell them, so like, we all think different. So how we think is going to be aided differently. Some people can't think unless they're under a tree in nature, right? But, you know, I, I usually can't think unless I can get to something and output what I'm thinking. Hmm. Yeah. So I think the next big kind of adverse thing that I, you know, felt, so, you know, fast forward through the teenage years of abuse and my twenties burying my lover. And again, you know, who the hell, my family didn't even come to the funeral, you know, it was just like. It was horrible, you know. I was like, it was bad not being gay for like all those years, and then having a lover died of AIDS. Then everybody thinks you have AIDS. You know, here it is, nineteen ninety three, and I'm actually untouchable uh, for so many people that I know. It, you know, we get up to my thirties, and I start like doing things, like actually actively counting, like, okay, what am I eating? And like, you know, I've got like literally journal entries from the early two thousands when I'm in my thirties, where I'm starting to like, okay, it, you know, my my pedometer says this, and it's so weird how quickly I realized that it wasn't the numbers that I was creating, but it was the fact that I was doing them to your point earlier, mm -hmm. your value is the output, but I didn't see that the, that the important part was the output until I actually recorded it. Right. Cause I'm like, okay, I've got a pattern here. So, you know, you know, the rule I like to use around that is we don't get better at counting steps. We get better by taking them. And I think for me, after my second or third time being arrested for DUI and like thrown in jail, I realized like, okay, I can count how many days I haven't drank all day long, but it doesn't matter if I end up back drunk again. Like I can count the time between inpatient programs at this drug thing, like, and how many days, you know, sober I have from Coke or whatever the drug du jour was, but it doesn't matter if I, if I not actually stopped. And mm -hmm. that really got me thinking about instead of like counting, you know, we always have like count ups and countdowns. I was talking to you earlier about mine, but it really got me thinking about, well, you know, we become kind of what we measure. So if I'm measuring not being a drunk, then I have to be really careful that I don't put all the metrics around not being a drunk because that reinforces the fact that I was a drunk. 
So, you know, so I just started, you know, relabeling things and, and looking at them differently. So a day of not drinking was, was a, a day towards sobriety. And it sounds like a weird, like, well, that's the same thing. Well, no. So it's a count up. Yes. So it was actually a, a lot different for me because I was just like, okay, so it's not 10,000 steps. It's moving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not 10,000 words. It's writing. And then because the metrics started to crush me, you know, so much of my early 30s when I actually, you know, before I built this elaborate system of my life became this exercise in, you know, I hate to say it, but the quantified self, mm-hmm. you know, and I could prove that these things existed and I hadn't learned to weaponize the data yet, you know, like, like well, here's a screenshot of what you said to me last week, which is so common nowadays, right? But now I'd look at that and I go, thank God I figured that out because I know so many miserable, healthy people. Um, they, you know, they know everything about their lives, but they just have not figured out the first thing about how to live. And it, that comes from the fact they're counting and not taking. I hope hmm. that makes sense. No, it does. It does. So let's, let's pause on that. I think that's, I think that's really important. I think the, the idea of the, the quantified self has kind of, it took off, I guess you would say like, I don't know, early t- early 2000s 2008 that sort of stuff i mean you had you had devices that would give you this stuff has it i also think it was i think the quantified self has kind of gotten gotten hit a little bit by covid people were just basically stuck at home you really couldn't do you couldn't i don't know count how many i don't know deadlifts you did in a massive gym because you couldn't go to the massive gym Mm -hmm. What's the what's the alternative for people if their entire lives were dedicated to quantified self for a long time? How do you how do you flip that into uh, as you said the days towards sobriety as opposed to the days not drinking? It's a mind shift, and again, I just think you know I hate to say it, but it kind of leads me to number three. So many of the apps we use today, and you know, and I had the same problem, right? They kind of you know my saying is we don't download the apps, we download habits. You know, some of these apps today are kind of built around reinforcing a set of beliefs. So you said, you know, how do you go from like not being able to deadlift to what do you do? Like, now you can't. And I think for a lot of people, one of the biggest struggles nowadays, and at least it was for me too in the early 2010s, was the apps provided an interface to who I thought I wanted to be. They were very aspirational. Like, well, mm-hmm. you haven't, you know, you fasting is a big one nowadays for young people. You know, haven't haven't fasted or you fasted this long. The challenge with that, and again, I'm very pro-technology, so never think I'm, I'm bashing tech, but the challenge, I think, for me back at that time when I was doing so well, and I hadn't realized these weren't apps, these were habits, was the minute the app got an update, the minute the app was bought by another company and then sunsetted, the minute the app had anything, had a change in payment plan and I couldn't afford to pay for it, all the habits went out the window. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something kind of really almost purposely evil about when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone. He said, see this half the space on this traditional phone? You can't use it. It's a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And to someone like me, I'm like, wow, you just took away the most important part of that phone, how I tell it what to do. And you replaced it with what he said, you know, a developer would want that keyboard to be this. Want that. And I thought, oh, you know, that's interesting at the time. But now I'm like, okay, you're basically kind of forcing people into a funnel. So I think for a lot of people today, at least for me, when I think about the adversity that I faced around apps, and to your point, a lot of people went through this with the pandemic. Well, I was like, do your habits have a backup way of existing if the technology were to disappear? Mm-hmm. Or, or can your habits even exist? And for me, that really, really meant kind of more of the analog stuff, like writing down. I have just, you know, lots of journals I'd like to write down when I have like 
little aspirational things. I'm having dental surgery next week. I literally made like little posters for myself for my room and printed them out. So if I get anxious, like I know my anxiety stack. Okay, you're going to have this thought. You're going to have this body sensation. Or you're going to have this feeling, which is a thought and a body sensation together. And that's going to lead to an escalation. Do you have an escalation? Are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? I'll send you a screenshot of this. It's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then I okay, all three of those are true. Boom, you're probably freaking out. So, you know, I think it's just one of these things where like, we really have got to take time to think about our habits and then think about how we're expressing them. And if they're all technology based, just tread really carefully. I feel, I feel like you're, you make me feel like a emotional cipher. I basically, uh, I have no understanding of my, uh, my, my emotional state. <laughs> that's not true. That's not, I've known you long enough. I've actually talked to you when you were emotional. So that's yeah. not true. Yeah. Uh, well, although yeah. you might not have known you were emotional. See, that's, that's one of the tricks that might be, that might be the answer. That's, that's why, that's why I enjoyed doing this because I, 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 I want to hear about when people felt something. Uh, yeah. and I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people were, we were so disconnected, um, for so long and we're also disconnected just in general. I mean, we just, yeah. we just tweeted each other anymore. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're, I think we're connected differently. I mean, there are people in my life who I absolutely love and adore, and I'm big fans of a lot of people, but I don't follow them. Nobody that I love or admire am I connected to on social media, and the people that I'm closest to were all blocked. Hmm. And that was just something I had to do 10 years ago to, because again, adversity, you know, okay, flashback to 2012. You know, I'm big on Twitter. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. I have like all these friends slash fans on Facebook, you know, I'm starting to get known for stuff. Yep. And I just start consuming people like their Netflix shows. And I stopped actually putting any work into relationships, visiting, calling, not texting, mm -hmm. writing letters, like the, sh you know, the crap my mom would like say, Christopher, she was a heavy smoker. Have you written your grandmother yet? She gave you $20 for fuck's sakes, <laughs> you know? And like, I, I wasn't doing the work. I was just passively consuming love. And for me, that realization was a biggie, you know, because here I was so successful, so happy, all these people, you know, resharing what I write, you know, favoriting, liking, etc. I had to like turn that off because all it did was reinforce and keep me trapped in who I was at that point. And there's nothing wrong with having a lot of attention and then using that attention to do things that make your life better. But then, you know, you end up like Kim Kardashian, right? You just, it's a cycle where you end up perpetuating your own belief systems and like how important you are. I mean, to this day, like not only do I not follow or am I, or the people I love blocked on all social media, I use every social media in a browser, all my social medias and browsers. And I use Ben Grosser. I don't know if you know who Ben is. You should have him on your show, uh, all his plugins and it strips away all vanity metrics. So I haven't seen a Facebook like or comment or hmm. date. I haven't used seen a, a, a tweet follower count or retweet count or comment in eight years. Wow. So, you know, when we stop measuring, you know, it's one thing to measure yourself. It's another thing to measure people. And, and it's, it's, it'll kill you to measure people you love. Does, does that take away the, does that take away the flavor of social media or does it take away the saltiness or the bitterness? I, I don't know. I, I mean, again, just because you can't see the numbers, if you use a non-algorithmic timeline, Mm -hmm. you're you're safe but if you use an algorithmic timeline take away the numbers won't matter because you're just seeing what's popular with everyone else anyway um you know i'll be honest the, the first five or six years i did it i really struggled because like mm -hmm. i would go to look at someone who was messaging me to see if they were worthy of my time and that's a pretty shitty thing to do yeah 
But once I got used to it and I just treated everybody like either have the time or I don't has nothing to do with the other person. Well, you know, I, I found my husband, I got married. I, I decided that I needed to live someplace where I felt safe. Hmm. Uh, it just was uh, one of those things. So, so you've created a healthy interaction with technology, which sounds uh, really, really nice. Healthier. Healthier. All right. <laughs> I still struggle. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a little too dependent on it. I wish I could just have feelings like regular people mm -hmm. and not need to understand them in the greater context of things. It is really hard to have to have feelings and also externalize them. I just really wish, but I've kind of way past that point. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you had some, uh, I think you had a couple more, quite a couple more little statements here that I like. Any of them jump out at you? We could hit them. Well, I like the, I like the don't create content unless you do, unless you want to be consumed. Yeah. Well, that probably hit close to home now, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exact. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that was, <laughs> That's uh, I think that that was my trajectory, I believe. My negative trajectory right into the Indian Ocean. Well, I don't know. So that one came from a, I did a, there's a university north, I think it's Northwestern University or Northeastern University. Mm -hmm. It's a big school in the Northeast here. And I was invited to do a thing to their students, like right at the beginning of the pandemic. And they wanted like five life lessons. And they were like, you know, we're entrepreneurs, we're doing this. And, you know, we're, we've got our hustle game strong. We're having Gary Vee on next week. And I thought, okay. Rule number one, don't create content unless you want to be consumed. You know, so I think adversity. So this is about adversity and how we overcame it. You know, at, again, about the same time, 2012, I'm really popular. I'm doing all these things. I'm on this media. I'm on that media. All those other kind of things. It becomes a thing. And I think YouTube culture, creator culture, journalists to some extent, but I do think you're safe from this, this rule, John, so don't worry too much. Mm -hmm. I think we've become kind of content machines. And... I think people don't understand the output of content isn't content, it's consumption. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize how much we are being eaten until we are being forced to get fat for the slaughter. And so many people today are so driven by, oh my gosh, look at these engagements. They don't realize those engagements are coming from eating more hay. And then, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And then one day, like, okay, you're being walked into this barn and you've got a, a nail gun in your head. And, you know, from YouTube creator burnout, from people who, you know, Lindsay Lohan to Britney Spears. I mean, name someone who wasn't consumed by creating content. I, I can't name one. I can't, Everyone I, I know. Yeah, I can't. Well, I can't. Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's the, that's a, and we, we talked about this with Joel Johnson, for example, in the previous yep. episode, this idea that, that it's not your, your, your fandom, your fandom doesn't love you in particular. They love the, they love the product and you're interchangeable ultimately. Mm. And I think there's, I think there's situations where yes, okay. One person can, can create an entire fandom. And I think we've seen that over and over yeah. again. Um, but also that fandom can wink out in an instant given anything. It could be a health issue. It could be a canceling issue. It could be That's anything really. Yeah. Or yeah, like you said, they just, they grow tired of you. And I think health cancellation and just uh, public fatigue are kind of the, the three leading causes of, you know, <laughs> of content of uh, creator burnout. Uh, but I think that being said, I always, and this is one of the things I told the young people in that university, I said, I said, you know, my goal, once I realized what was happening with the content hamster wheel was to become so popular that I could still choose how I spent my time, but not so popular that I couldn't change my mind. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a real balancing act with that. You know, I just doing a big event for Microsoft last week in Atlanta. I just did a big event for the Canadian government the end of last week up in Canada. And I get paid well for doing those things, but I get paid well because I've done enough work to maintain where I'm at. So like I'm still swimming laps, but I'm not winning any gold medals. Mm-hmm. I think so many people worry more about the medal count and not about the laps. And, you know, content's the same way. You know, I started this podcast off by saying I was done for the year creating more content, but I'll mm-hmm. give it one more thing. Well, that goes back to, I think, like my fifth rule here, which is we need to stop valuing our schedules and start scheduling our values. You know, so much of like what my life has become in my mid fifties has been more about like, I don't need to value my time as much as I need to put my, put values in my time. And, and that meant like, yeah, I might be done for the year. I'm not doing any more interviews or podcasts or helping anyone do anything. But that could still be overcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if I if I know someone who I really like, who is like, you know, starting something and like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I want to I want to, you know, help out. Does that make sense the way I'm kind of stringing it all together? I think it does. I think it does. Okay. Does this I think I think a final question. Do you think all of this insight comes with age and experience? Would you have would you have accepted these ideas uh in the go-go thirties, right? Or, mm. I mean, I'm yeah. asking myself if I would have accepted these ideas. And, and yeah. when I was, when I was, I don't know, 16 posts a day on Gizmodo or whatever, 28 yeah. posts a day on Gizmodo, just pounding it out. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the only reason I'm not dead is because technology saved my life. Mm-hmm. And literally the, the subtitle of my book is how technology saved my life and can save yours too. You know, I, I would love to say that age and wisdom made me brilliant, but the fact that I got to grow old made me brilliant not the age mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the process the process of getting old made me smarter and you can't get old if you're if you're banging out 28 blogs a day mm-hmm. it's just it's gonna kill you it's gonna wreck your relationships it's gonna do everything else and i don't want to say that you need some la la rah rah life balance and all that other kind of crazy crap that we do but i do think we need to just be very meticulous and i talk a lot about values in my keynotes nowadays we need to be very meticulous about defining well, what are my values and how do I maintain them and what are the guardrails around them, you know? So setting an out of office or saying no more public talks, no more interviews, no more anything for the year, that's a, that's a value, right? Because I have a value of work. It's number three on my, I'm sorry, number four on my part is. But you know what my highest value is? Service. Mm-hmm. That's literally, and like service is like, okay, helping out people, even though I might not have the strength. Right. There's I doubt my interview with you is going to make me any richer, happier or anything else. But you know what? I am damn proud I got a chance to talk to you again. And it was the right thing to do. And that's I, the I best appreciate way to go. That. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And thank you for being vulnerable. This is a this is a hard thing to do, I think, for a lot of people. And it's kind of like I've 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 actually had people turn it down just because they're like, I can't I can't look that way. Yeah. I saw a guy. I, I, one more story. We've got like two minutes, I think. I saw a guy on Reddit the other day in the Gen X uh, subreddit. And I, did, I almost wanted to share his stuff on Twitter and I didn't, but um, he, wanted, he wanted to, um, he was feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everybody reported it, which means he just gets a bunch of messages saying people are worried about you. Uh, but he had had a heart attack. He was, he'd been a year with his wife yelling at him because he can't make ends meet now. They just bought a new house, new car. He's in his early forties, all sorts of kind of stuff. So I literally went to him and I said, listen, I don't know you, but you're hurting. And you know, I just want you to know that like, pain sucks. And what you're doing right now publicly, even though this is throwaway kind of is very vulnerable. And 
and a bunch of other things that were just really heartfelt. You know, he's obviously my age because he's in the Gen X subreddit. Obviously, his whole life had been turned upside down. They're about to lose their house. He can't get a job. His wife's not talking to him. Well, it was really wild. After that, he messaged me to say thanks. I could literally feel the compassion about you. But what really blew my mind was I had like five people from that subreddit who weren't even in that thread message me in private message saying, I'm really struggling. You seem like you would listen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so important that when you say, you know, it's hard for people to be vulnerable. I think we only need one good act. I think that's the reason Jesus is so popular. We only need one good act of self-sacrifice and people will follow. And we're Mm -hmm. kind of missing that. Chris Chris Dancy, most connected (laughs) man in the world, the most incredible man in the world. Uh, And uh, I thank you for joining us because this was, uh, I mean, the idea that, that that you're taking October, November, December, January. Hopefully, oh, the rest of the year off uh, from from being uh, being Chris Dancy, yeah, <laughs> from being Chris Dancy. <laughs> uh, sounds amazing. Oh, thank uh, you. Well, keep going, you. John. Thank you, thank you. This has been Keep Going. It's a podcast about success and failure. I'm John Biggs. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Keep Going. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. And remember, when you're going through hell, keep going.